Let's open our Bibles now, though, to Romans chapter 14. We are just cruising right along in this epistle. It's only taken us two and a half some years to get here to Romans chapter 14. We'll find the rest of this book actually goes pretty quickly for us. Romans chapter 14, and let's stand up together in honor of the word of the Lord. Hear now the word of the Lord, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. We pray, God, that you would give us, by your spirit, receptive hearts, Lord, to hear what it is that you are saying to your church through your word, and to respond in obedience and faith. Lord, I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Should Christians vaccinate their children? That's the question we're considering this morning. Our passage is going to give us help with that and how to think about that, as well as many, many other questions. Like, while we're at it, what's what's God's method for child rearing? Should you schedule your baby's feedings or just feed them when they're hungry and ask for it? What kind of schooling should Christian children do? What about colleges? Should they go to college? What kind of college? What does God's word demand of us? How should they dress? What should they eat and not eat? Can they have cell phones? And if they have cell phones, at what age can they have cell phones? What kind of music can Christians listen to? Should Christians boycott businesses that support evil? Do we need to be boycotting Disney and Starbucks and Target in Amazon, I actually, let's just put every large corporation except Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby in there <laughs> once we start the boycotts. What about dating? Can a Christian date? Should a Christian, <laughs> should a Christian court? That a girl. Frederick, you've done well. Should they court instead? What about arranged marriages? That sounds pretty good. What about online dating? Can a Christian do that? What about vacations? What kind of vacations can Christians take? What about just luxuries in general? Houses that are big and nice and expensive. Cars that are big and nice and expensive. Electronics. Can Christians have cable TV and, worse yet, watch it? Can Christians let their kids go trick-or-treating? 
Should Christians celebrate Christmas? Can we listen to Christmas music and decorate before Thanksgiving? A pretty fierce battle has arisen among our own members over that this past week. You may have seen it as it played out online. My wife being pretty aggressive towards one of the young ladies in the church. Can a church building be decorated for Christmas? What kind of activities are we allowed to do on Sundays? Can we mow the yard? Can we go out to eat? Can we watch a football game? How should we dress for church? What does the Bible demand that we wear when we gather together for corporate worship? What style of music does the Bible demand of us when we gather together for corporate worship? What's the truly Christian view of nutrition? What's the God-approved diet? What's the Christian view of essential oils or natural remedies versus medication? Can Christians see therapists? Can Christians take antidepressive medication? Should Christians submit to or resist public safety protocols? What about when there's a mask mandate? Must Christians obey it or must Christians refuse it? What does scripture demand of us? Can Christians borrow money and if so, for what? What kind of debts does the Christian then need to pay off first? Do we, do we have to fi- follow Dave Ramsey's protocols or not? What about tobacco and alcohol? Can a Christian smoke and drink? How are Christians supposed to feel about gun regulations? What's the official Christian position regarding the environment? What does the Bible demand we believe about climate change, about drilling for oil, about deforestation, about mining for coal? What these questions and many, 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 many more like them have in common is this. The answers to them are not explicitly spelled out for us in Scripture. They are matters of Christian liberty. They are matters of conscience. Paul calls them in verse 1 and some of you aren't going to like this on some of those topics, opinions. That's what Paul calls our personal conscience on matters that are not explicitly spelled out in Scripture, opinions. They are are almost, though, as I went down that list, and I tried to be intentional as I could going down it, they're almost all things that we feel very, very strongly about. There are things that Christians are tempted to divide over. They are certainly things that Christians use to beat each, up, beat each other up over and shame each other over and heap condemnation and sometimes mockery and oftentimes judgment on one another. And we're going to be spending the next five weeks learning from Paul how to live with one another amidst differences, how to treat each other when it comes to matters of Christian Liberty, And in in the four verses we're looking at this morning, Paul's going to give us three instructions regarding these gray areas of Christian liberty. These things that are not spelled out directly in Scripture. The first thing he's going to tell us is welcome the weak in verses 1 and 2. 
The, the truth is, no matter what stance you take on any of those topics I just brought up, you consider the person who disagrees with you to be the weak. And Paul says, welcome them. Welcome them. Second, verse 3, don't pass judgment. Third and verse 4, trust the Lord. We need to be clear, though, as we begin talking about this, what we're dealing with in these gray areas, these are areas of Christian liberty. These are areas of Christian conscience. These are not areas of biblical doctrine and explicit biblical teaching. We don't have room for diversity on biblical doctrine and explicit biblical teaching. We are, as Jude 3 says, to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so false teaching and those who teach it, we're not to tolerate those things. We're to contend for the faith. The church is to be, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the pillar and the buttress of truth. We must contend seriously and vigorously for clear, uncompromising declaration of truth. And if we were to flip ahead in the book of Romans, just a page or so in our Bibles, and get to chapter 16, verse 17, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So it's clear that what we're dealing with in this passage and and in this, this section of Scripture we'll be looking at the next number of weeks, it is not matters of doctrine that Paul is talking about. We are not free to reject clear biblical doctrine in favor of our own man-made feelings and traditions and teachings. We're also not talking about the regular biblical practice of admonition. We are called to admonish one another. We are called to warn one another. Not just about doctrinal error, but about behavioral error, about sin. Christian, you are, in fact, your brother's keeper. It's one of the reasons God has given us to one another. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, that's, that's, um, that's Paul, by the way, uh, Timothy transcribing a sermon of Paul's, just in case you wanted me to. We're just, it's okay, everyone. I'm just kidding. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but it is... Timothy writing down a sermon of Paul's. All right, so Hebrews chapter 10 says this. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. We do and we should look out for one another in our life and conduct. But this calling one another to live in accord with the commands and prohibition of Scripture is not what Paul's addressing right now in this passage. We are to do that. We must do that. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul here in this text is addressing what is, what is often called matters of indifference. Areas of freedom, areas of conscience, gray areas, opinions, liberties. It's those things that the Bible does not explicitly give us instruction on. There's no command to do these things, and there's no prohibition against doing these things in Scripture. It shouldn't be surprising to us that there are differences of opinion among genuine Christians about these areas. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We're all very, very... Different, And so we should expect that we'll be very different in our approach to hundreds of life issues. And friends, that's part of God's good design for the church. 
He didn't create a bunch of clones. It's part of the beauty of God's design. In a small church like Maple Grove, we're still not all clones. We still have a great difference on many issues. And the ones I named at the beginning, some of them jokingly and others quite intentionally, are things that even in our small church we don't all agree on. We don't all have the same conviction. There's a wonderful diversity among us. And it is wonderful that God has brought diverse people together to worship him. We're all different. Just just in this room alone, we are young and old together. We have different traditions. We have different upbringings. Some have grown to a greater degree in Christ-likeness than others have. Some have grown more than others in theological depth. We have different personalities. We have different temperaments. Some are impulsive. Some are more thoughtful and cautious. We have different temptations. We have different habits. We have different home lives and different personal history. And it's really, we are shaped deeply by our personal history. We have different experiences. We have different physical bodies with different limitations and different medical issues. We have different mental and spiritual limitations. We have different struggles and fears and anxieties. We have different giftings and callings. The Holy Spirit is working differently in each one of us, and yet he has united us together to provide for the local church everything we need. Everything that we need. It's it's beautiful. That's the way God has designed the body of Christ. We are all very different And it is beautiful. But our differences, even in matters of opinion, especially in matters of personal conscience, can so easily become fertile soil for disputes and accusations and factions and disunity and conflict and ultimately division in the church. And so we need the instruction that this passage has for us. We need it to help us live together in unity with our differences. And so let's look at these three instructions Paul has. Welcome the weak, he says. Look at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. For one person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. His first command is to accept, to welcome, to treat as family the weak. And again, Paul's going to use the language of strong and weak here regarding faith on these issues. And let's just be clear up front, on all of these matters of personal conviction, we are convinced that we are right and that the other person is wrong. That's why it's a conviction for us. And so nobody gets out of this one. You see everybody else as the weak, and Paul says you have to welcome them. Welcome the weak. It's the same word Paul used when he wrote to Philemon, and he tells him, Onesimus, your slave, is returning to you, but he's returning as a brother of Christ, and so you need to welcome him when he comes. Paul instructs Philemon that whatever kind of warm, friendly, welcoming, and honor you would show me, that is how I expect you to receive Onesimus back to you. He is your brother. Welcome him. Believers are called to welcome the weak in that way. Each one of us. Welcome them into intimate fellowship. 
welcome them, treat them with honor. No second-class status. No taking verbal shots at them. The same word is used again in verse 3 here to describe God's acceptance of believers into his family. That's how we welcome one another, as those who have been welcomed and received by God. And so Paul is making this contrast here, and he'll, he'll make it a few times between the weak and the strong. And in this passage, Paul describes the strong as those who eat whatever they want. And he describes the weak as vegetarians. Those who only eat vegetables. It's a matter of preference. It's a matter of individual conscience. It's a matter of Christian liberty. There aren't dietary restrictions on New Testament believers to either eat meat or don't eat meat. So this, this division that has come in Rome is not a division over a biblical command. One group is rejecting a biblical command and the other group is is upholding it. It's an issue of personal conviction. And Paul calls it a matter of opinion that is directly tied to faith. So how does eating or not eating meat have anything to do with faith? Well, because he's not talking about dietary vegetarianism. He's not even talking about not eating meat because it grosses you out and you just love the little animals so much you can't bear the thought of eating their meat. You're missing out. That's not what he's talking about. There's one, one or two motivations going on. The first has to do with idolatry. And this is a big one. Much of the meat that could be purchased from the market had been sacrificed to an idol before it made its way to the market. So first century Jews who had been careful their entire lives to avoid any form of idolatry, anything that had ever been offered to an idol or come in contact with an idol, their thinking was, if I eat this meat that comes from a cow that's been sacrificed to a false god, then I am somehow participating in that idolatry. Some Gentile believers had the same hang-up. Some had come from a background of pagan idolatry, and they didn't want any association with that old life whatsoever. And so they didn't want to eat a big, juicy cheeseburger that came from a cow that had been offered to an idol. To them, it just felt wrong. It felt too much like their old life, and they didn't want that. So even though an idol is nothing, Even though eating that meat is not participating in idolatry, it makes sense that some people weren't comfortable with it. We we can look at both of those groups of people and go, I could see how they got there. But they're just not going to eat meat. The second has to do with the kosher preparation of all food. If we have, for instance, a biblical command not to boil a young goat in his mother's milk, then the Jews took that biblical command and said, well, we're not even going to get close to that. And so we will keep all milk completely separate from all meat. And if you go to a a kosher restaurant today, there's a a milk fridge that's not got any meat in it. We're not even going to come close to that. Proselyte Gentiles who had, who had come into Judaism, they, they felt the same way. They're following Daniel's example in Babylon and, and choosing vegetarianism in order to avoid any, any violation that, that, that is in their mind. 
Paul doesn't tell us exactly what the thought process is that's going on here. And he doesn't need to, because what Paul says here applies to all kinds of issues of conscience that we deal with in our lives today. Again, these aren't gospel matters. These aren't doctrinal issues or matters of false doctrine or matters of sin and violation of clearly uh, spelled out biblical commands. These are matters of indifference. We're not called to tolerate false teaching. We're not called to tolerate sin. That's not what Paul's talking about. These are things that are not a threat to the gospel. They are not sin issues. Neither side here is condemned by Paul. He doesn't condemn the strong and he doesn't condemn the weak. Paul doesn't bring correction to their personal conviction, even though, as we'll see, Paul says one side's actually right and one side's wrong. And that's it. as we go through any list of matters of conscience... It's not to say that one side isn't better than the other side. The the question is not that. The question is not, should a Christian eat meat or should a Christian, for conscience sake, be a vegetarian? Paul's going to say, there's absolutely no reason whatsoever for you to be a vegetarian for conscience sake. But Paul doesn't speak a word of correction to the weak brothers. He speaks a word to both sides and says, stop judging each other. Stop dividing. Stop doing this. Paul Paul agrees, though, with the strong in this matter. When we get down to verse 14, we'll read this. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Therein lies the issue. So so Paul thinks Christians should eat whatever they want, but he does not condemn the weak for their view. It is okay for them to live that way if they choose to live that way. So Paul does not here say to the weak, you're being dumb. You're overreacting. We're we're going to Bill's Steakhouse. I'm going to personally sit there and watch you eat a two-pound steak to the glory of God. That's not what Paul does with the weak here. What he does is give instruction to both groups so that people who disagree on matters of conscience can live together in harmony in the church. And he begins with this command in verse 1. Welcome the one who's weak. Make them feel like they're part of the family. The onus is on the strong to not make the weak feel excluded. He says, though, in the second half of verse 1, but not to quarrel over opinions. Paul tells us this because this is a real temptation for us. We feel very strongly about our personal convictions. We don't just think it's right for us. We think it's right for everybody. That's why it's a conviction, and we think all people should do like we do. And here's how you know that's true. At some point this morning, you've already argued with me in my mind about something I said that you don't think fits in this category. That's why we need this teaching. We feel very strongly about our personal convictions, especially if we got a famous preacher that we really like, and they go too far on this. And we're like, well, that's all the validation I need. But friends, the sweet fellowship of the diversity of believers is at stake in this. Paul makes it clear to us, we are to welcome the weaker brother. 
Don't welcome him for the purpose of judging his opinions. He's not to feel unloved. He's not to feel unwelcomed. He's not to feel shamed. He is to feel loved and wanted and honored. This leads to the second instruction Paul gives for matters of Christian liberty. He says, don't pass judgment. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. This temptation towards judgment goes both directions. Those that have weaker faith tend to judge the spiritual condition of those who experience more freedom in their Christian life. Those who have a stronger faith tend to judge the spiritual condition of those whose conscience is more tender than theirs. So to the strong, he says, don't look down on your weaker brother. Don't think you're superior. Don't entertain condescending thoughts about them. Don't engage in ridicule or sarcasm or shaming. In fact, the rest of this chapter is going to go on to show us something very, very important. The contempt shown to the weaker brother. The attempts at coercing them to, to, to act like you act and do what you do actually poses a great danger to their soul. If he goes ahead and follows your advice, which is really more like instruction, sometimes sounds more like demands, if he does that, he's violating his own conscience and he's sinning, Paul is going to tell us. Verse 14, he says, if they think it's unclean for them, it is unclean for them. Don't become the cause of your brother's sin before the Lord because you have such strong opinions that you're sure you're right about. If you lead him to sin in a gray area, you are opening the door for him to sin in all kinds of areas in his life. As Luther said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Now again, Paul actually sides with the strong on this argument. Verse 14, I already read, he says, nothing is unclean in itself. Verse 20, he says, everything is indeed clean, but he goes on to say the word but after that. But it is wrong to make anyone stumble by what he eats. Look ahead then at at, at verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul, Paul says the strong are right about this, the weak are wrong, and in fact it's because they have weak faith that they're wrong. And Paul says our obligation is love. Our obligation is to bear with them. Our obligation is unity. This is the command. And our liberties are subordinate to this greater purpose. And so if you're one of these people in the church at Rome and you invite your friend over to your house and you are loving the freedom to eat pork and you invite them to your house, your brother of weaker faith who for conscience sake will not eat meat, that is not the time to fire up the smoker and show them just how much more spiritually mature than them you are. Don't lead your brother to sin. Love them, welcome them, honor them. You're not free to judge your brother. You're not free to do harm to your brother by trying to make him violate his conscience. That's not what love does. 
So first, the strong are prohibited from judging the weak. But notice the second half of verse 3. It goes the other way around. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. There's a temptation here for those who have the weakest faith, those who are the most immature and theologically uninformed, to run everything. You all have to bow to me because I don't understand things correctly, and so you're just going to have to do what I want you to do. Paul gives a warning both directions. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Don't judge their devotion. Don't judge their motives. Don't judge their spiritual maturity or condition. That's the temptation for the one who has chosen not to eat. Because since for him eating would be a sin, he assumes that must be true for everybody. Since it would be a sin for me to eat this, it must be a sin for you to eat this. Friends, we do this kind of thing all the time. We need this teaching from Paul. We do this all the time. How could a Christian family let their kids trick or treat? I guess they're very immature. I guess they just don't know, like I know. I guess they want to be worldly. That's what they want. These parents just want their kids to be accepted by the world. Do you know that Pastor Jason sometimes drinks Starbucks? I guess he supports their wicked liberal agenda. I guess that's what he wants to support those things, and so he does that. How can a person be a mature Christian and a smoker? Well, I'll tell you how they can't. Impossible. I've decided. I didn't read something in the Bible that told me that. I just decided that. I'm not recommending you take up smoking, by the way. Kids, if you go home to your parents and like, Pastor Jason seemed pro-smoking this morning, you've misunderstood. There, there's probably a principle there about not being mastered by anything. And I would just say this to us, that whatever applies to smoking probably applies to sugar and coffee too. We have our convictions and we put it on everybody and we judge them. The weak brother assumes the strong brother has engaged in some kind of high-handed rebellion against the Lord. Because if it would be wrong for me, it must be wrong for them. It's a great story of Charles Spurgeon once traveling to a city and he was traveling first class on the railway. And another preacher saw him get on the train and go into the first class car and was scandalized, so offended. And this preacher sitting back in the third class carriage, fuming. Here's this preacher, says he's a man of God, and there he is on the first class carriage. And he finally boils over and marches his way up to Spurgeon in the first class carriage. He says this, Mr. Spurgeon, what are you doing up here? I am riding back there in third class taking care of the Lord's money. And Spurgeon said, I'm up here in first class carriage taking care of the Lord's servant. But the truth is, we have these things that we feel strongly about. And when anyone violates that, we are so quick to judge. So quick to judge their motives, their hearts, their intentions. We need to recognize the difference between orthodoxy and opinion. And don't judge, and certainly don't divide over opinion. 
Don't judge your brother for exercising some liberty that you don't feel free to exercise yourself. That might just mean you need to keep your mouth shut sometimes. If you're the preacher back in third coach, scandalized by Spurgeon up in first coach, you might need to just swallow your pride and not march up there and give him a piece of your mind because you might end up looking like an idiot. Paul gives us the reason for this at the end of verse 3. For God has accepted him. It's the same word as as verse 1. God has welcomed him. You're to welcome him because God has welcomed him. And if God has welcomed him, who are you not to? Are you holier than God is? Are you more spiritual, more mature, more pure? God sees what we can't see. God sees the heart. God sees the motives. God sees the devotion. God sees the faith of every person. And Paul says, your Christian brother has been welcomed by God, so it is not your job to judge them. Not on these matters. We're told elsewhere to judge one another rightly. On matters of doctrine... On matters of living, matters of sin and righteousness, but not on these matters. The truth is, you're going to find yourself somewhere on the spectrum of weak to strong in regard to pretty much every single issue that is not addressed in the Bible. You are inevitably going to to run into Christians on any issue not directly addressed in Scripture, genuine Christians who are either more conservative than you are about it, or weaker in the faith, as Paul would say, or more liberal than you are about it, stronger in the faith, as Paul would say. Virtually every practice or issue, you're going to find yourself somewhere on the spectrum with some who who take a a more permissive stance than you do and some who take a more restrictive stance than you do. And that's okay. It's not just okay, it's great. It's good. It's good. We're different. Your job isn't to assess the motives of every other Christian in their practice of or restraint in every area of their lives. God has not assigned you. You may need to hear this. God has not assigned you to be the perfect model for all of Christian living in every single area of life. Your way is not, you have not finally achieved the pinnacle of humanity where your take on every issue is the perfect take on every issue. Does the Bible expressly condemn something or forbid it? Is there a biblical principle that is clearly at stake? Then yes, on those matters, we must be unwavering. We must be in lockstep in the church. Absolutely. We saw a principle last week. We are to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That is binding on all Christians everywhere. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lustful desires. But just because something is a provision of the flesh for you does not mean that it is a provision for the lust of the flesh for everyone. That's simply not true. So the command here is don't judge each other in these things. You may may not be able to have cable television. 
You simply can't have it. You can't, you cannot, you cannot, um, you think to spend the money on it would be wrong for you, would be a mismanagement of your funds. You think the content is all garbage and no Christian needs to be putting it in, in their minds and into their households. And for you, cable television would be a major provision for the flesh. And because your conscience tells you that, it is actually unclean for you. You should not violate your conscience on that. But you can assume that that's true for another Christian. But that's what we do. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. If this is a provision of the for the flesh for me. Everyone must be identical to me on this. We actually do harm to our brothers and sisters. Just replace the word eat in this passage with whatever your thing is. Drink alcohol. Let kids go trick-or-treating. Vote for Donald Trump. Wear a COVID mask when you're in public places. Whatever your thing is that you're hung up on. And just insert that into the passage. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may vaccinate his children while the weak does not. But the one who vaccinates his children, let not the one who vaccinates his children despise the one who abstains from vaccinating them. Let not the one who abstains from vaccination pass judgment on the one who vaccinates, for God has welcomed him. Run any one of those issues through this filter. Again, Paul's not talking about clear commands of Scripture. Paul does not condemn the weak here, and he does not condemn the strong here. And so we can't insert things like smokes pot into this, into this uh, you know, one person believes he may smoke marijuana while the weak does not. No, that doesn't work. It violates a clear biblical command to sobriety. We cannot insert that. That's not the kind of things we're talking about, though. We're talking about matters of Christian liberty. That's what Paul's talking about here. Matters of personal conscience. And friends, we need this. I know we need this because I've been able to see all of your faces the whole time I've been preaching this morning. And I know that for some of you, I have said some things. You might not even be hearing what I'm saying right now because you've tuned me out over matters of personal conscience. We need to hear this. It's the reason this instruction is here for us. It is very hard for us not to turn our personal convictions into universal absolutes that we think everyone should be bound to. It's not only easy to do it, it's, it's hard not to do it. It takes effort not to do it. If, if we just naturally didn't do this, Paul wouldn't, Tell us this. God wouldn't have seen fit to include this in the pages of Scripture. Matthew Henry said, though, in judging and censoring our brethren, we meddle with that which does not belong to us. We have work enough to do at home. In other words, in our own lives. And if we must needs be judging, let us exercise our faculty upon our own hearts and ways. If you need to judge somebody... Point it at yourself. There's enough work for you to do there. So true. It leads to our final instruction. Paul says, we can trust the Lord about this. These things that we feel so strongly about, we can trust the Lord. It says in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? We're not talking about friends having conversations. 
family members having conversation. Kids, by the way, any of these matters of, of personal conscience, whatever your parents have landed on, that is binding upon you as their child. As for me and my house, it will go like this. You're not, if you use this sermon against them, they'll call you rebellious children. I'll just shake my head at you and frown the next time I see you. No, it's binding. And we're not talking about friends and brothers having conversations about these things. Like I said, Paul thinks one side's right and the other side's not right. It's just that neither side is sinning. So we shouldn't act like they are. Every one of those issues that I've mentioned this morning, I have a very clearly defined position on. Every one of them. Some of them I feel very, very strongly about. This is what's right, and this is what's wrong. The question is, are we judging or not? It's not wrong to say, I think I'm right about this, and I'd love to have a loving, gentle conversation with you about it. Wonderful. But guard our hearts. Paul says, who are you to judge, to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? This is an emphatic rhetorical statement, and what it does is rip us off the throne. We think we're the one. We think we're the master when we pass judgment on other people. You are not the Lord. You are not the master of another believer. We have no authority to accuse or condemn someone else's servant. A house guest did not walk into the, the, the master's home and start bossing his house servants around. That was a great disrespect to the master of the house. We're not free to do that. The, the, the master's servants don't have to answer to me. They don't have to answer to you. They answer to him. It is before his own master that he stands and falls. And then here's the beautiful statement. And he will be upheld. He will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. We're talking about Christians here. We're talking about Christian conscience, Christian liberty. And what Paul reminds us is the master loves his servants. And the servant loves his master. And we have this assurance. If God saves us, we will never fall away because he will keep us. He is able to make us stand Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Philippians 1 verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and my Father am one. Earlier in Romans, in chapter 8, Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. 
who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or, or being wrong about a matter of personal conscience like eating meat or not. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 the believers are born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for his salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 7, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Believer, our God is mighty to make us all stand. Not a single one of his people will perish. He is able, Paul says. God chose to save not the mighty, not the wise, not the influential, not those of noble birth, but us. Us. The weak. The foolish. The lowly. The despised. He did it so that no human would boast, so that God would be glorified, and since he did it, we will stand. God who saved us will uphold us at the right time, while we were weak, while we were dead. God saved us. He set his eternal affection on us. And we are weak. But he's strong. He saved us and he will save us. He welcomed us and he will welcome us. And so let us receive and welcome one another. As we've been received and welcomed and loved by him. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, your word challenges us. It will not let us assume the place of God. It will not let us take what is rightfully yours. It will not let our pride rise up within us of our own self-righteousness without reminding us of the gospel, that it is God who saves the weak and the helpless us. Lord, I do pray, God, by your spirit, you would cause us to be faithful. Lord, in these matters, we, we do want to live rightly. We want to live our lives to the fullest in the freedom that you have given us in Christ, but we want to walk with our brothers in humility and grace and love. And I pray, God, that, that you would cause the love and welcome that you have shown us to so abound in our hearts by your spirit that it overflows onto all of our brothers and sisters in this church, that we would walk with them 
in love. I pray especially that our kids would feel this most of all, that the kids of this church would feel so loved and so welcomed here that it would cause them to glorify you and to love you, that your gospel would be adorned by our kindness to them. I pray, Lord, that we would interact that way with all of our brothers and sisters here, knowing that they are your children. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified in this church and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.